Hi, and welcome to the Resilience Podcast. I'm Brad Hook, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Tal Ben-Shahar. Tal is an author and a lecturer. He taught two of the largest classes in Harvard University's history. His books have been translated into more than 30 languages and have appeared on bestseller lists around the world. His most recent book is Happier, No Matter What. I highly recommend it, and there is a link in the show notes. Tal is the co-founder and chief learning officer of the Happiness Studies Academy and Potential Life. In 2022, Tal designed and launched the world's first master's degree in happiness studies in collaboration with Centenary University. Tal won the U.S. Intercollegiate and Israeli National Squash Championships a few years ago. We'll talk about that very soon. Tal, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure and welcome to the Resilience Podcast. It's great to be here, Brad. Thank you for having me. So I thought maybe a great starting point for people who haven't encountered one of your very popular videos on YouTube or your books is tell us a little bit about your story and how you became interested in the science of happiness. Um, so, you know, Brad, I became interested in happiness because of my own unhappiness. I was uh, an undergraduate at Harvard uh, studying computer science. Um, and I found myself in my second year doing very well academically, doing very well in, uh, in, in sports, I played squash, um, doing quite well socially and yet being very unhappy. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, you know, th this doesn't make sense. You know, I, I think I've done everything that I was supposed to do to be happy. You know, I, I checked those boxes and yet I wasn't. And um, I woke up one very cold Boston morning, uh, went to my academic advisor, and I told her that I'm switching majors. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science, moving over to philosophy and psychology. And, and she asked me why. And I said, because I have two questions. First question, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with these two questions that I then went on to get my undergraduate in philosophy and psychology, uh, studied education, uh, the other Cambridge in England, and then back to Harvard for my PhD, all the time focusing on how can I help myself, individuals, couples, families, organizations, and ultimately nations increase levels of well, well-being. And that's what I've been doing for the past 30-some uh, years. Wonderful. And for our listeners who are interested, perhaps we could establish a working definition. Like what does happiness mean to you? Because we've all got different versions of, of happiness and pleasure and so forth. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are probably as many definitions of happiness as there are people around the world and, and possibly more because some of us have more than one definition. Um, but the definition that, that I work with that I find most useful is that um, happiness is um, a composite of five elements. Um, and you find these elements uh, in different cultures uh, throughout the world and, and, and throughout time, different ages. And these elements are um, this, what I call the spire elements. The S stands for spiritual well-being, which is about meaning and purpose and about, uh, about being mindful and present. This is spiritual well-being. Then it, there is physical well-being, the P of Spire, which is about physical exercise. It's about nutrition. It's about uh, rest and recovery. 
Then there is intellectual well-being. That's the I of Spire. That's about curiosity, about learning and, and such. Then there is the relational well-being, the R of Spire, which, um, you know, number one predictor of happiness is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. It's about kindness and generosity. So that's the R of Spire. And finally, the E, emotional well-being. And that's about learning to accept and embrace painful emotions and cultivate and generate pleasurable emotions. And um, it's these spire elements that together constitute uh, a happy life. Now, it doesn't mean that we need to have all of them all of the time, but it means that we are impacted and affected by um, each of them most of the time. Wonderful. Very clear. Is spiritual first for a reason? And I noticed that in the structure of your book. Mm. Yeah, um, mostly because it's the first letter of the word spire. It works. It works. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I can certainly make a, a case for spiritual being the first. But, you know, to be honest, I can make a case for any of them. And the reason yes. is because the five spire elements uh, exist in a system, an interconnected and when you have a system, you can basically start anywhere because everything is interconnected in that system. Mm, I really like the opening quote in your book by Helen Keller, that happiness is wholeness, something to that extent. Yeah. I love so that. She, um, it's Helen Keller who actually inspired the, um, my short definition of happiness, which is uh, happiness is whole person well-being or in, in a word, whole being. The thing, though, is that we need to break it down in order to make it clearer and more accessible and uh, more practical. And that's when we break wholeness or whole being to the five spire elements. Love it. Very clear. Thank you. So in the context of resilience, I was really interested to ask your perspectives on post-traumatic growth and anti-fragility, two words that we hear more and more, but that for some people are maybe a little abstract. Yeah. So, you know, anti-fragility is a, a term that was coined by Nassim Taleb. Nassim Taleb, originally from Lebanon, today a professor at uh, New York University, um, coined the term. And as I see it, what it actually means is what I would call resilience 2.0. Yes. So, you know, resilience 1.0, the original term, actually comes from engineering. Uh, it describes... Um, uh, the the nature of certain material that when you put pressure on that material after you let go it goes back to its original form a piece of rubber for example or a ball if you drop it and it's resilient it bounces back up yes and that's why we often talk about individuals who are resilient as uh, as uh, possessing the ability to bounce back yeah now resilience 2.0 or anti-fragility takes this a step further. Specifically, you put pressure on material. If it's resilient, it goes back to its original for form. If it's anti-fragile, it actually grows bigger, stronger, better as a result of that pressure. Or you drop a ball, resilient, it bounces back up to where it was before. Resilience 2.0 or anti-fragility, it actually bounces back higher than it was before. Now, why does this matter? Because it turns out that Within us, we have anti-fragile systems. For instance, our muscles. We go to the gym and we lift weights. 
as a result of lifting weights, after a while, we actually grow stronger, bigger, healthier. We are an anti-fragile system physiologically and psychologically. And this is where the term post-traumatic growth comes in. Very often, after an experience uh, of, uh, of trauma or after a difficult uh, experience, we don't just bounce back. We actually grow as a result. Not always, which is why we shouldn't, needn't uh, invite traumatic experiences, of course. However, at times, it's possible to grow from hardships, difficulties, even traumas. And the thing is that we can do certain things, introduce certain interventions into our lives that significantly increase, not guarantee, but significantly increase the likelihood that we will experience post-traumatic growth, that we will be anti-fragile. And in many ways, this is what the science of happiness is about. This is um, where I see the, the work being done by researchers and practitioners in positive psychology, in the science of well-being, as being so important. Because one of the things that these interventions contribute to is anti-fragility, resilience 2.0. Mm. What are some of the, the risks to anti-fragility? And, and I, I ask this question in the context of people who are putting themselves in stressful situations, chronic stress, day-to-day -day work, never-ending emails, fragmented attention, that's not necessarily going to help us become either resilient or anti-fragile. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, um, think about the muscles again. Mm. You know, you go to the gym and you lift weights and you push yourself. Uh, you can also get injured. You know, you can pull a muscle, strain a, a muscle, break something. And then obviously it's, uh, it's unhealthy. So even when we put ourselves under pressure, we need to remember the very um, delicate balance between stress and recovery. Yes. Between um, um, difficulties and ease. Because when we find that balance, that's when we become anti-fragile. If we um, put too much stress, too much pressure, we are, uh, of course, in danger of breaking rather than building. Mm, very clear. I like that. Can you tell me a little bit about the paradox of pursuing happiness? Something that I've heard you speak about, because many people think that by, you know, manifesting happiness or I, I read the secret and if I just, if I just will it, it's going to happen. But it seems for many in the work that I've done, uh, it seems to drift further and further away the more you chase it. Yeah. Um, so the paradox of happiness is, um, is, is incredibly important because it becomes a barrier to happiness for, um, you know, people who are interested in becoming happier and also for happiness experts. So many people fall into that trap. So what is that paradox? It turns out, uh, surprisingly, at least for me, that people who would wake up in the morning and say to themselves, um, I want to be happy or happiness is important for me, or it really matters uh, to me um, to be happy, these individuals actually turn out to be less happy. Now, that's a problem because we naturally, by instinct, want to be happy. Not only that, we're constantly told that happiness is a good thing, which it is 
you know, there's research showing that if you increase your levels of happiness, and not only does it feel good to feel good, but you actually become more successful. Your relationships uh, improve. You become more creative, more productive, more engaged. You live longer. You know, there are all these very compelling reasons to want to be happy. And then we're told that if we wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, I want to be happy or happiness is important for me, we actually become less happy. And this is precisely what research by Iris Moss and others shows. So what do we do about it? What we do about it in the way to resolve this, uh, this inherent barrier is to continue to pursue happiness only to do so indirectly. What does this mean? So, so let me use uh, an analogy which helped me un understand it. So let's say you, you, know, you go outside and it's a bright sunny day and you look at the sun directly. What will happen? You know, your eyes will burn, you'll tear up, it will hurt. It's unhealthy. So looking at the sun directly hurts, causes harm. But what if you take that same sunlight and you break it down into its uh, elements using, say, a prism? And then you look at what lies on the other side of the prism, meaning the colors of the rainbow. Oh, well, now you can enjoy it. Now you can savor it. Mm -hmm. Now you derive benefit from it. So looking at the sun indirectly helps. Looking at it directly harms. And it's the same with happiness. When we pursue it directly, I want to be happy. Happiness is important to me. That will have a harmful, deleterious effect. Mm -hmm. However, if I break it down into its elements, happiness that is, and then pursue those elements, then I actually increase my levels of happiness. Now, the question, of course, is, so what are these elements? What are these metaphorical colors of the rainbow? Yeah. They are the spire elements, spiritual well-being, physical, intellectual, relational, emotional. So, for example, spiritual well-being would be um, a sense of meaning and purpose or a sense of uh, presence. So if I get up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to meditate for five minutes a day, or I'm going to pursue those things that are meaningful to me, that matter to me. Mm -hmm. That's indirectly pursuing happiness. That's going to increase my levels of well-being or take physical well-being, the P of Spire. If um, I start exercising regularly, that will significantly increase my levels of well-being. That's indirectly pursuing happiness. Or when it comes to intellectual well-being, if I learn new things, if I expose myself to new ideas and, 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 um, and, and new people, well, that's learning. That's indirectly pursuing happiness. When it comes to relationships, if I'm going to spend a bit more time, quality time with people I care about and who care about me, that will indirectly increase my happiness levels. And the same with emotions, you know, uh, uh, enjoying um, time with, with people or... Um, or writing in my gratitude journal. That's, you know, these are ways of increasing positive emotions that's indirectly pursuing happiness. Yeah, makes sense. So happiness is the outcome. And just trying to connect the dots with anti-fragility, if you manage to cultivate the capacity for anti-fragility, you might accelerate your pathway towards happiness. Yes, and... 
Each one of these elements is a path to anti-fragility, to higher levels of resilience. And when mm. we cultivate anti-fragility, we actually become more susceptible, more open to all of these spire elements. So potentially there is an upward spiral that's created between anti-fragility and happiness. But most importantly um, is the direction um, of spire to anti-fragility. Why? Because we have very clear accessible interventions, practices that we can introduce into our lives that make us more anti-fragile, that make us more resilient, 2.0. I love it. And perhaps before we finish off today, we could talk about a few of those practices. Uh, but before we get there, because our audience loves practical tips, uh, happiness studies as an academic field, can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. So, you know, eight years ago, I was uh, on, a, on a transatlantic flight when uh, a question came to me. And the question was, how is it that there is a field of study for psychology, philosophy, history, medicine, uh, literature, geography, you name it, but there's no field of study for happiness? Yeah, there is positive psychology, but that's just the psychology of happiness. What about what philosophers like Lao Tzu and, uh, and Aristotle had to say about happiness? What about what, um, um, you know, writers like Marianne Evans uh, or Chinua Kebe had to say about happiness? What about what uh, historians or economists or theologians? Or what about what film can teach us about happiness? Why isn't there a field or rather an interdisciplinary field of study? that brings together these uh, wise uh, thinkers and practitioners and integrates them into uh, a whole that can help us both underst or understand, pursue, and attain happiness in our lives. And I resolved on that flight, after asking this question, to help create such a field of study. And alongside... Um, Many other people, my, you know, my colleagues, uh, friends, um, we created a field of happiness studies. Uh, initially, we launched, we created the Happiness Studies Academy, where mm -hmm. we launched a certificate program. Today, we have thousands of students from over 85 countries. And um, more recently, uh, six months ago, in uh, conjunction with, the, uh, with Centenary University, we created the world's first fully accredited, fully online happiness studies master's degree. Wonderful. There was something you mentioned there which really resonates, which is those really profound insights, those ideas happening on airplanes where there happens to be no Wi-Fi, although now that has changed. But isn't it interesting when suddenly you have no connection to the world, uh, you create a bit of space, some of the creative ideas do flow. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, and that know, may, have, may uh, not have been the case for you, or maybe it was. Oh, yeah, it often is the case. Um, you know, whether, uh, you know, we used to get our best ideas in the car, but, you know, now we're on all the time, you know, speaking to people, uh, not, quote, unquote, wasting our time doing nothing. Now, this, quote, unquote, waste of time is very important. Time because that's very often 
when um, when uh, ideas uh, emerge. It's very often when we have our eureka uh, experiences, aha moments, and when we're on this that you know that screen all the time, we're not allowing our uh, mind, our brain to to roam, and yes. um, and we pay a price for it in the form of creativity and well-being. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is part of what is detracting from our experience of happiness is that we're just bombarded by stimulation and we're carrying around all of the world's information at hand's reach at all times. And it's vying for our attention. It's not just that it's there. It's actively trying to pull us into virtual worlds. Yeah. You know, there was, there was, it's exactly that there's um, research done on uh, teens in the United States. It applies to, uh, it's been replicated in, in, in slightly different uh, forms around the world. And it applies not just to teens, also to adults. But specifically, this study was conducted by Jean Twenge. She's a professor in San Diego. And what she did was, uh, al- alongside her colleagues, every five years, they looked at the mental health levels of teens in the United States. And what they found every five years, mental health levels fluctuated by 1%, maybe, you know, up 1%, down 1%, you know, no, no significant change um, between you know, generations of teens until uh, just before Corona. So this is pre-COVID. Yeah. When they looked at the mental health levels of teens, what they found was that there was an increase in levels of depression of over 30%. Suicide rates went up by over 30%. They had never seen anything like it. And they've been studying it for decades. And when Jean Twenge asked the simple question, why? She mined the data looking for the answer and she came up with the following, and I quote, the ascendance of the smartphone. The ascendance of the smartphone. That is what made most of the difference. This is what explained most of the variance when it comes to um, the decline of mental health. And for various reasons, one reason is that, um, you know, connecting to technology disconnects us from people. And as I mentioned earlier, number one predictor of happiness are these connections to people. Second, it's because we've become more sedentary. That's the P of Spire. We pay a very high price for, um, for not moving enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, pains me when I see young kids sitting with the phone instead of, uh, I suppose in the past, maybe it would have been a pacifier, but now the phone is the, the pacifier and you wonder what is going to happen. Do you think humans adapt and naturally grow? Uh, I hear that young people are increasingly putting their phones away and starting to embrace the real world. Let's hope it's a fair percentage of them. You know, just literally um, half an hour ago, I saw an article in the newspaper saying that more and more um, young people are going back to the flip phones. Really? Um, and uh, I find that interesting. My uh, Our eldest son, who's uh, 18, um, asked for it. You know, he's, uh, he's a soon-to-be professional athlete. And he said, this is, you know, wasting my time. It's, you know, it's hurting my practice. You know, I don't want, I don't want to have this distraction. 
Um, and, and it turns out that he's, he's not alone. Many of his uh, fellow teens are doing the same, which I'm, I'm very glad to see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, considering your own happiness uh, and, and what you've seen work in the, the thousands of people that you've worked with, what are some practical tools that people could use in order to not look at the sun, but look at the, the spectrum of light? Right. Um, so l let me go through the, the spire elements just because it gives a, a, a structure and help me, helps me think through the, uh, the various um, interventions. And again, I'm, I'm giving here, of course, a sample yes. of, uh, out, out of many possible interventions. So let's begin with spiritual well-being, um, which is about um, meaning and mindfulness or purpose and presence. Yeah. Um, asking a simple question such as, what is meaningful? to me, or looking back and asking, where did I feel a strong sense of purpose? And then doing more of it, or asking, what is it that I do right now that is meaningful? Because very often we simply need to change our mindset to simply appreciate what we're already doing for it to have a positive impact. So yes. for example, um, um, reminding ourselves that what we do is actually making a difference in people's lives. Just that, first of all, reinforces the positive behavior and second, generates, indirectly, generates happiness. Second, practice meditation, some form of mindfulness uh, um, activity for you know, even three minutes a day if you're not doing so already. And that could be in the form of focusing on the breath going in and out. It could be... Um, really focusing on a prayer. Uh, it could be engaging in, in, in yoga, whether it's for an hour or two minutes, or, uh, or it could be listening to your favorite piece of music with your eyes closed, focused, not as background music, listening it in the foreground. That's mindfulness meditation, present moment awareness. That's all it is. Okay. So that's um, the um, S. P of Spire, if you're not exercising, get moving. You know, I'm not a therapist, but many of my students are therapists or future therapists. And I say to them, if I were a therapist, the first question that I would ask my client, actually the second one, because the first one would be for their name. But the second question that I would ask them is, are you exercising? Because if the answer is no, I would urge them to exercise. The, the, the research out there on, on exercise is literally, not metaphorically, mind boggling. Yes. It actually works in the same way psychiatric medication does. Yeah. And the interesting thing, and again, Brad, in the context of, of your work, and this is research um, came out recently, initially from Holland and replicated uh, around the world, is that when we cultivate physical toughness, we're indirectly cultivating mental toughness. Yeah. Now, no big surprise because mind and body are one. So exercising actually makes us more resilient, yes. more anti-fragile. Um, you know, introduce a small positive habit into your, in, uh, in, in the way you eat, whether it's lowering sugar consumption, whether eating a little bit, you know, more um, fresh food rather than processed food, whether it's, um, you know, little longer breaks between meals, a little bit more of intermittent fasting, whatever it is, not something yes. that will tax you too much, something that's easy for you to implement, but implement it consistently. 
And this, by the way, is a, is a, is a common theme in all the interventions that I talk about, which is small changes make a big difference when consistently applied. Yeah. Next, um, intellectual well-being. Learn something new. You know, maybe watch a, a, a TED lecture once a week or listen to a podcast once a week or, or read something that, that you're interested in. Um, again, small changes, but introduce this freshness, this newness into your life. It will have an effect on everything that you do, even the things that you do day in and day out. Um, it will bring more freshness and newness to them, novelty. Uh, then under relational well-being, spend quality time with your loved ones. Quality time means time without that technology. Yes. Disconnect so that you can connect. And even if you have you know, an extra half hour or two hours a week of that, what a difference that can make to your overall happiness. Commit to, um, this is based on research by Sonia Lubomirsky from UC Riverside. Commit to five extra acts of kindness a week. Um, small things. doesn't have to be anything major, but do it consistently. The impact of that is remarkable for various reasons. One, because you will feel better. Two, no less importantly, the other person will feel better. And third is that kindness is contagious. You know, we all have these mirror neurons. And uh, when it comes to kind behavior, when people observe it, they are more likely to act kindly subsequently. So you're contributing to your happiness. You're also contributing to, contributing to a better world. And finally, when it comes to emotions, um, accept, embrace painful emotions when these arise. You know, we all are, uh, we all experience sadness or frustration or anger or disappointment or, or anxiety at times. These are natural human emotions. And when we accept them by writing about them, by talking about them, by shedding a tear, when we accept and embrace them, they actually do not overstay their welcome. It's when we fight them and reject them and deny them, that's when they stay. And um, here's a simple exercise. Start a daily or even a weekly gratitude journal. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful way to cultivate pleasurable emotions, to bring about more, uh, more happiness. And when we appreciate the good in our life, the good in our life appreciates in other words, we have more of it. I love that. And I love that it's so practical. You don't need to make grandiose sweeping changes, small steps in the right direction, micro habits, but just lock them in each day. The key is to lock them in. in. The key is to make them uh, into habits, into rituals. Yeah. And then gradually upscale those that are working for you. So a one minute breathing exercise might one day become a one hour meditation session every morning, but don't start with the one hour because you'll get frustrated pretty fast. Exactly. Go, go for the low hanging fruits um, and then celebrate those uh, small wins. And over time, they will uh, amplify. And under the P of Spire, I'm guessing sleep plays a very important role. Very important role. Um, you know, there is, um, there's a wonderful book by Matthew Walker, mm -hmm. Why We Sleep. And um, I must say, after reading that book, uh, I wasn't sleeping too well because um, I felt stress. I mean, I read in this book that sleep is so important. So, you know, going to bed, I immediately thought, I must fall asleep. I have to sleep. And of course, what happens is you're less likely to fall asleep when... <laughs> yes. uh, 
when, 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 when you have to fall asleep. Mm. So, um, so with that caveat, I think it's a wonderful and very important book. And um, we need to prioritize it. You know, sleep yeah. is one of the, if not the most important forms of recovery. And if you think about it, you go to the gym and you lift weights without recovery, you get injured. Yes. You don't get stronger. You become fragile. It's only with recovery, whether it's in the form of sleep or a day off a week or a 3D breaths throughout the day. All these forms of uh, recovery, without these forms of recovery, we're fragile. With them, we become anti-fragile. In other words, it's the rest, it's the sleep, it's the recovery that triggers our anti-fragile system, whether it's in the gym physiologically or in life psychologically. That's a really important point because many people would think just doing more, loading myself up, being like uh, David Goggins and you know, running with a broken foot, that's going to make me anti-fragile. But what you're saying is it's the rest that actually does it. It's the recovery. Once again, we have the capacity within us for fragility, breaking down, or anti-fragility, building up. And what makes the difference between these two very often are those triggers. And one of those triggers, one of the most important triggers is rest and recovery. And that brings in that idea of active relaxation rather than passively sitting on the sofa, Netflix, bottle of wine, not the worst thing in the world, if, if that helps you. In moderation. Exactly. Everything in moderation, including moderation. I think that's the quote. But uh, it, I suppose it's it's all about choosing it deliberately like tonight this is how i'm going to relax but that's not my default because it's the only way i can calm my nervous system yeah yes so um the the wonderful research by mihaly chicks and mihai on uh, flow you know he talks about this active relaxation and the interesting thing is that you know we, we we come home and we you know sit down veg out in front of the tv and with or without that bottle of wine and in no time we fall asleep and we tell ourselves yeah i was too tired to do anything, uh, you know, productive or, 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 or meaningful. Um, whereas in fact, what he shows in it, what he showed in his research was that when we enter the state of active relaxation, you know, doing thing, something that is important, meaningful, interesting, uh, to us, we actually get our second wind mm. and it also functions as a form of recovery. So, uh, you know, um, uh, engaging in an interesting conversation or, uh, yes. or taking up a hobby that we're passionate about. These are um, both enjoyable, meaningful, and uh, powerful forms of recovery. Wonderful. And uh, before we finish off, just maybe you could share what keeps you resilient and resilient 2.0, anti-fragile. What are some of your favorite practices? Do you still play squash? Yes, yeah, so um, I'd given up squash uh, 26, 27 years ago due to uh, um, injury, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But um, and I always said, you know, I, I'll go and I'll, I'll go back to playing squash if uh, one of my kids take takes it up. So you know, eldest kid um, who's now you know almost nineteen, no interest. He's a basketball player. Um, second kid, sixteen, daughter, dancer. Third time lucky. So my youngest son uh, picked up squash and he's passionate about it. So I play with him uh, every day. Do you? Yes. Are you enjoying it? Oh, tremendously. And yeah, the wait, injuries? Wait, wait, for the, 
soon I won't be able to play with him. He's, uh, he's improving leaps and bounds and I'm not, mm -hmm. um, but, um, but, 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 but it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Ah, uh, this is great to hear. Um, but, but this is not the only thing I do for, you know, for, uh, anti-fragility. Um, I do spend a lot of quality time with, uh, with, with my family, with, uh, with my friends. Um, I also, you know, being engaged with the, the Happiness Studies Academy. This is, of course, something which is personally very meaningful uh, mm -hmm. to me, whether it's teaching the certificate program or teaching the master's program. Um, and, um, you know, ju just earlier today, we had our, our weekly uh, webinar. And, uh, you know, I could go in jet lagged, tired, exhausted. I come out uh, refreshed and, and, you know, rearing to go and ready to have uh, another similar session. So that certainly uh, contributes to my sense of meaning, purpose and happiness, as well as anti-fragility. Mm, that's something. And one more thing, Brad. Please, Sorry. please. I accept and embrace painful emotions. You know, the big difference between now and, you know, 30 years ago when I embarked on this journey is not that, well, I experienced painful emotions then and today I don't anymore, you know, been there, done that. Far from it. You know, I have my rough days. I have my difficult experiences. I have my, uh, um, my you know, my, my anxiety. You know, these things are, are, are still there. They'll, they, they, they never do go away, certainly not entirely. The difference is that um, today I embrace them and accept them and I don't fight them uh, as much as I did then. And when you don't fight them, when you give yourself the permission to be human, these emotions leave just as they came. They do not overstay their welcome. I love that. Yeah, that's agility. That's being able to go with the flow and, and, and ride that wave. As a surfer, I often think about things mm. in terms of the surfing experience. And yeah, you might find yourself stuck trying to paddle out, getting pounded by waves, but it's, it's gone as soon as you make it out there and you never think about that again. Why hold on? Why hold on to that? Very interesting. So you mentioned the world's first MA in happiness studies. Uh, for anyone out there who's interested, uh, what kind of topics do you cover? Hmm. So, um, you know, the, the, the degree combines both uh, theory and practice. It incorporates the work of psychologists, neuroscientists, philosophers, theologians, film, literature, uh, history, economics, you name it. And what we do is um, we bring together the writings, the thinking, the ideas, the practices of um, wise people from around the world and from time immemorial to um, simply answer a question, you know, how can I become happier? How can I help others do the same? And it turns out that this is a very important question, of course, for ourselves, whether we are working as uh, homemakers or we're working as managers in organizations or as teachers in school or therapists or coaches. We have all of the above and more. We have students who just graduated from university, 22 years old, and we have uh, students who are in their 80s. We have, um, you know, CEOs of companies, consultants, coaches, therapists, medical doctors, lawyers, you name it, every, every profession imaginable. And everyone applies it to their particular domain. Because if you increase levels of happiness, it's not just good in and of itself. It's not just that it 
feels good to feel good. It's also that you become more creative, more innovative, more productive, more engaged, your relationships improve, you become healthier. It benefits every domain of practice. Mm. And beyond, there's a ripple effect out into the world, as you mentioned. Very much so. And that's why we focus on you know, helping ourselves and helping others. And that the others, again, could be our uh, children or colleagues or students or uh, or clients or coaches. Do you think there is a, a new tide of awareness and positivity building, especially in light of teachers such as yourself and Andrew Huberman and Matthew Walker, who are sharing their insights with a much wider audience? People seem to be waking up and embracing these ideas. Um, yes. Um, the um, main word here is building the word that you used, it's, it's, it's happening right now. You know, and the nice thing about change is that it's uh, slow, 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 and then very fast. So there at some point there is the tipping point that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. And I think we're nearing that tipping point. Uh, and th there are so many indications uh, showing that because, because it is spreading, because there is more interest. And, uh, you know, when you have a, an exponential function and, um, you know, human networks are, uh, an, ex uh, an exponential function, then I think we'll see that tipping point very soon. Mm, what an exciting time to be alive. Indeed. Thank you so much, Tal. Uh, any final thoughts? Um, I want to go back to small changes make a big difference. Please. Consistently applied. And, um, and to urge, you know, our viewers, listeners to, um, um, to identify one or at most two things that you would like to introduce into your life. They can be the low-hanging fruit. They don't have to, it doesn't have to be anything grandiose or, 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 um, or difficult. Just low-hanging fruit, something easy that you think will actually make a difference in your life and implement it daily, consistently, as a habit, as a ritual. And there, is, uh, there are many resources out there to help you, you know, attach a habit to an existing habit, the whole Atomic Habits framework, those types of things. Any recommendations in terms of how you remind yourself to perform these acts? Yeah, so um, you know, the, the, the model that I teach in, in our various programs is what I've come to call the three R's of change model. Mm -hmm. And the first step, the first R is reminders. So create reminders. Um, around the, the house, whether it's on the wall or your screensaver or wear a bracelet to remind you, and it could be to remind you to be more mindful or to express gratitude. Uh, use your um, smart device as a reminder, you know, every two hours to move, for instance, or to be kind. Um, so create reminders. Yes. Create these reminders repetitively. That's the second R, repetition. And after you remind yourself and you do something repetitively, that's when you get to the third R, which is ritual. A ritual is where we, ha we have a habit, where there is actually, actually a neural pathway that was created in our brains that helps us do something automatically. Just like we brush our teeth day in and day out automatically. We don't need reminders for it anymore. So we can um, create a ritual around being kind or being grateful or, um, or, um, um, or exercising yes. or accepting. These are all rituals 
that are created through repetition that is brought about through reminders. And a ritual implies that it's important. So protect these habits because often when we're stressed, the first thing I know personally, the first thing that happens when I'm under pressure is I will sacrifice my well-being. I'll go, okay, I can't run today. I'll go to bed later than usual. I'll wake up. But protect those rituals because they're really important. And they're important for you as, uh, as, as an individual. They're also important for everyone you come in, in, in contact with because we're nicer, more generous. Um, we're also lead by better example when we take care of ourselves. What a way to finish. Tal, thank you so much for connecting with us. How can people connect with you? Um, well, thank you for asking. So it's uh, through um, my website, which is talbenshahar, all one word, dot com, or on our happiness studies, that's three S's, happinessstudies.academy website. Wonderful. And those links will be beneath this video or audio in the show notes. So please do click and connect with Tal and the team. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. It has been a pleasure talking and thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you on the next episode of the Resilience Podcast.